Okay. I think I'm all turned on here. All right. Um, we are in Genesis chapter 36. And uh, we began uh, last week uh, the beginning of the chapter, which is the beginning of a new Taladot. And we spent quite a bit of time last week just reviewing this whole concept of Taladots. And I don't want to rehash that at this point. But as I promised, next week we're going to start another Taladot. We're going to start the Taladot of Jacob. And so I'm going to see how many of you can remember the ten Taladots of Genesis next week. Okay, But we won't review that part of it today. But we did... Uh, we did look at the first eight verses of chapter six. In addition to all that review we did, we looked at these first eight verses of chapter uh, 36. And today we want to pick it up with uh, verse nine and look at the rest of the chapter and actually the very first verse of chapter 37. And we uh, mentioned that this uh, Taladot of Esau is actually divided into two sections. And the first section is the section we looked at last week, which is verses 1 through 8. And that had to do with uh, Esau's, uh, uh, basically the birth of his children, but primarily about his move uh, from Canaan to the land of Seir or to Mount Seir, which is just to the south, uh, southeast of Canaan. And uh, so that's what we talked about last week. And that's the first part of the Taladot. And then this, you'll notice in verse 9 that the second part of the Taladot begins kind of the same way the first one does. It just gives that, that kind of a Taladot introduction. But since it's not introducing a new character or a new person, uh, we, just, uh, we understand it to be just the second part of the Taladot of Esau beginning in verse 9. So... Uh, <clears throat> Why don't you look at those first uh, eight verses, uh, kind of look down through those and uh, try and refresh your mind a little bit. What are some of the things we talked about there in those eight verses of. So we never you, you left before we even got to the lesson last week, huh? Yeah. Jacob's been gone all these years. He comes back. Uh huh. That's uh, basically what happened. <laughs> Actually, there were a few years intervening there. Uh, uh, I think I went over this last week a little bit with you on the timing, but but Jacob is probably back with his father for uh, several years before his father dies. About 13 years, I think it was. I forget what the exact number of years was. Somebody have the notes on that? I think I did mention that last week. But anyway, so he was there for a few years before Esau left. But yeah. What else? Well, we were talking about how Esau's life was a period of twenty. Uh huh. That some of the birthright is just on the word of those. Okay. He married Canaanite women, and he also found them in another land away from God's promise. Mm-hmm. And so the principle was about how Esau chose me at right of the promises of God and the life today. And actually, that's kind of what his second name represents to us, isn't it? It, it makes a point there in those verses about 
Esau is Edom. It says that twice in those verses, and it says it again once in the passage that we're going to look at today. And so it stresses that Esau has this other name, Edom, and Edom is associated with that choice that he made when he when he sold his birthright for a pot of red porridge or red stew. And uh, so that name Edom means red. And so whenever we think of Esau's Edom, it reminds us of that choice he made. And uh, so the thing that the thing that we come to understand about Esau is that he is characterized as a man who chooses the immediate gratification over the promises of God, as Karen was was saying that that's characteristic of him. And then, of course, his his uh, descendants take on that name. They become the Edomites. And so we can think of the Edomites and we're going to talk a lot more about them today, but we can think of the Edomites as people who choose the immediate gratification over living by faith and waiting for the promises of God. And that will be graphically illustrated to us today uh, as we go through this uh, genealogy. Uh, But it's a real lesson to us not to live like Edom, not to live as ones who have got all have it right now. And so we talked about that that uh, saying that we all learned as kids, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And we've learned that when it comes to the things of God, that's just not necessarily always true. <laughs> so what else? Yeah, Rick. Yeah. And and yeah, that waiting and that faith is our act of love and devotion. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that again today, too. Okay? Well, we actually have quite a bit to cover today. Uh, I know your heads are probably reeling when I say I'm going to cover verses 9 through 43 and then the first part of. First verse of chapter 37. You don't think I can do it, do you? Well, you watch, okay? <laughs> but uh, but this is the uh, basically the genealogy uh, or the account of the records of Esau, and uh, and there was one point that I didn't get to last week that I uh, wanted to get to, and I didn't get to last week, and I promise you we get to it this week, and I'm going to do that, but I'm going to wait and include it a little bit later in the things that we talk about uh, today. Uh, but before we read this passage, we might just think for a minute about about this idea or thoughts of genealogies. Uh, we, encounter the, we encounter these genealogies periodically in Scripture, and we've already talked about them some. We've talked about linear genealogies and segmented genealogies. Does anybody remember what the difference is between a linear and a segmented genealogy? We actually have sort of an example of both in this passage that we're going to look at today. Okay, okay. A good example of a linear genealogy would be the genealogies of Christ in Matthew and Luke, where it says so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And it's just a straight line and it just mentions, uh, with each individual, it just mentions one descendant of that individual. It doesn't mention his whole all of his sons or all of his descendants, but it just mentions one son and then it mentions his one son. And it's just a straight line down 
And the point of a linear descendancy, uh, linear genealogy is uh, one of the chief points of a linear genealogy is to point uh, to point someone to the direct connection between the person at the end of the genealogy and the person at the beginning of the genealogy. Hence, the genealogies of Christ are linear. It's to point uh, it's to point the connection between Abraham and David and, and Jesus. OK, but a segmented genealogy instead gives uh, an individual and then it gives all of his descendants and then it will go down to those or to all of his sons and then it'll go down to those sons and give their sons, etc. OK, and so you'll see a lot of that here in the passage that we're looking at today, a lot of, uh, of segmented uh, genealogy. But but we come upon these genealogies periodically in Scripture and and they're all, they're always a list of names that are hard to pronounce and they're obscure names. Most of them, we have no idea who these people are uh, or what their significance is or why the scripture even bothers spending time on them. So oftentimes with the genealogies, we just kind of hurry on through them and try and make a, uh, a faint pass at trying to pronounce half the names and, and we just move on through them. But they really are here for a reason. And the question we have to ask ourselves in this genealogy of Esau uh, and Esau's descendants, the question is, what is it that the children of Israel, as they read these, this genealogy of Esau, what is it that God is expecting them to learn from this genealogy? And I would suggest there are a couple guidelines that we can think about as we, as we try to contemplate what are the children of Israel learning from this genealogy and I would suggest there's kind of two uh, two uh, lines of thought that would that would be beneficial to them and one is the specific content of the genealogy the names and the specific events that are mentioned they would uh, they would doubtless have at least some of the names and some of the events would have some significance or some relevance to the children of Israel. They, as they would read these names, they would go, okay, I know who this guy is. Or if some particular event is described in the course of the genealogy, go, okay, we, I, I remember that event being talked about and I know the significant, significance of that event. So they would look at the, the specific content and it would at, at least at some points make real sense to them or be some connection to them that would help them understand their own lives and their own place in, in redemptive history and that sort of thing. Okay. Now, the problem is we are several thousand years removed from that. So some of the content that is significant to them is just goes right by our head and we don't have any idea why it's significant. Okay. But the flip side of that is that there are some things, some of the specific content that would not have been significant to them that has become significant to us because of later revelation. So there are some names that are mentioned, uh, for example, in this genealogy, that the children of Israel are reading about it in, in the wilderness as they're reading this for the first time. Uh, it's not going to really resonate with them like it may resonate with us because we know some of the later history uh, from some of these specific names. So there's a specific content that has meaning and significance. But not only that, but the way a genealogy is written can have specific significance or can have instructive significance. And we're going to find that in this passage as we read through this passage, that the way it's structured, the way it's constructed, and the way the narrator chooses to tell this story about the genealogy of Esau can be instructive to us. Okay, So those are going to be a couple things that we look at. So as we read through the passage, 
uh, today, and I want to read through all these verses, but as we read through them at periodic steps, uh, st- points, I'm going to stop and just point something out to you because it'll be helpful then as we go back and, and talk about it uh, for you to notice these things. So I'm going to try to point out some structural things for you as we go through. But picking it up in verse 9, it says, And these are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And I want you to notice right off the bat, if this, is a, this is like an introduction uh, to a Taladot, okay? but this is just a subsection of the Taladot of Esau. And it points out that he's now living in the hill country of Seir. Okay? Then it says, These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada. Rule, the son of Esau's wife, Basement. The sons of Eliphaz. Now, who was Eliphaz? Esau's son by Ada, right? Okay. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Okay. And now, there's also Timna. She was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz. And she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Ada. Well, actually, they weren't her sons. They were her grandsons, right? Okay? So, make a note of that. These are the sons of Rule. Natha, uh, excuse me, Nahath and Zerah, Shammah and Mizpah. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Basement. Okay? Now, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Olabama. The daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zibion, she bore to Esau, Jeush and Jalem and Korah. Okay. Now, what I want to point out to you here is that, uh, before we go on, as I just point out real quickly, is that the narrator has constructed a list of sons of Esau that consists of 12 plus 1. Okay. So he's constructed a list of 12 sons, but to come up with a list of 12 sons... He has really listed nine grandsons and three sons. Okay, so he's wanted to get a list of 12 and to get a list of 12. He combines the grandsons and the sons to get his list of 12. And then the third one is the or the 13th one is the son of the concubine. We'll go back and talk about that in a few moments. These are the chiefs. Of, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Now we're going to get first. We had a list of the sons. Now we're going to have a list of the chiefs of the sons of Esau's uh, of Esau. And these are the the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are chief Teman and chief Omar and chief uh, excuse me Omar and chief Zepho and chief Canaz and chief Korah and chief Gatim and chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz. In the land of Edom, these are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Rule, Esau's son. Uh, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Rule in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basaph. Are you lost yet? I hope not. But at any rate, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Olabama, Chief Jeus, Chief Jalem, and Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Olabama, the daughter of Anna, or Anna. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and, they, uh, and these are their chiefs. Okay. So in verses 10 through 19, we have a list of sons and we have a list of chiefs. All right. And these are all uh, from Esau. The significance is 
that these two lists are virtually identical. Did you notice that? They're the same names with a couple exceptions. With, actually, with one exception and one little variation, they are identical lists. Okay? Well, let's go on. We'll come back to all that. In verse 20, these are the sons of Seir the Horite. Now, suddenly, we're leaving Esau. We're abandoning the genealogy of Esau, and we're going back to talk about the genealogy of a guy named Seir who lived in Mount Seir, after which Mount Seir was named, presumably, who were there before the Edomites were there. Okay, so this is a totally different genealogy and it begins here in verse 20. It says, these are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lachan and Shobal and Zibion and Anna, and Dishon and Ezer and Dish, uh, uh, excuse me, Dishon and Ezer and Dishan. You've got to get that difference there. There's one letter difference in those two names. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. Okay. The sons of Lotham were Hori and Heman, and Lotham's sister was Timnah. Now, we already talked about Timnah. Timnah was Esau's, uh, or excuse me, was Eliphaz's concubine. Okay? These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin and Manahath, and Ebal and Shepho and Onan. And these are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father, Zibion. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Alabama, and the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemden and Ishban and Ithon and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Zavan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aran. So we've had now a list of all these sons and grandsons of Seir, who is the guy who lived in Mount Seir before Esau came in and took it over. Okay, And he's listed all his sons. But now notice, we get another list. And this is a list uh, uh, beginning in verse 29. This is a list of chiefs of Seir. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites. Chief Lotham, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. So now we've had, with Esau, we've had a list of sons and a list of chiefs, and the list of chiefs is virtually identical to the list of sons. Now with Seir, we've had a list of sons and a list of chiefs, and the list of chiefs is very similar to the list of sons. Okay? Uh, I'll try to make some sense out of all this later. I'm just pointing these things out to you, so when I go back and refer to them, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay? Then we pick it up in 31. It says, Now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. That last phrase, at least, about before any king reigned over the sons of Israel, uh, uh, there's actually a couple opinions about that phrase. One is that it has been added later after there were kings in Israel, which would make the writer able to have the perspective to be able to write that, okay? So the suggestion is this was added by a later scribe to the text to clarify that all these kings of Edom existed before kings existed in Israel. The other possible explanation for how they would know this uh, is that, is that uh, God had promised Abraham that there would be kings that would arise from his descendants 
And so the, the writer here is just speaking with that prophecy in mind. There have been no kings yet in Israel, but he's saying, listen, all these kings arise, arose in Edom, okay? And we haven't had any kings yet arise in Israel, but that's going to happen because God's promised it to Abraham. So those are the two possible explanations for that uh, little comment there at the end of verse 31. But these are the list of the kings. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. Then, or Dinhaba. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. Then Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Abba. Then Hadad died, and Shamlah of Masrachah became king in his place. Then Shamlah died, and Shal of Rehoboth uh, on the river, or on the Euphrates River, depending on how you translate that, became king in his place. Then Shal died, and Baal-Hanan, of, uh, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of the city of his city was Paul, and his wife's name was uh, Mehetabel, the daughter of Matra, the daughter of Mezahab. Now, these are the names. So that's the end of the list of kings. Now we go back and we get another list of chiefs. Now, these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities. So now the chiefs are associated with localities. Okay, By their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetha, Chief Alabama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timnan, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdal, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. And then the concluding comment at the end of the Taladat is chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Okay? Now, don't ever ask me to read that whole list of names again. Okay? Alright. Okay, now... First of all, I just want to take uh, a moment. Uh, we t- I talked about how to the Israelites, uh, as they read this, certain names and certain events would stand out. Okay, and they go, "Oh, okay, we know this guy." Are we? And, and so it would it would make sense to them, and it would help provide some context for their lives. <clears throat> well, as we read through this genealogy, the same thing happens for us. We come across certain names or certain events that are described, and we go, oh, okay, I know what that's talking about. And it becomes a point of reference for us then as we look at the whole of redemptive story. And as you look down through that whole list of names and discussion of events and things that we have just read, is there anything that jumps out at you or any name that jumps out at you? And don't say Obama. He's not related. She is not, and he is not related to anybody we know of today. Okay. Yeah. You like the name, or does it have some significance? Well, because the first few letters says Joe. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know that there is any, but yeah. Okay. Joab. Yeah, that's a different name. 
Okay, now that's where you have to watch when we get into genealogies because a lot of times you have duplicate names. And in fact, in this genealogy, there are two chorus in this very genealogy. And neither one of them are the, are the same Korah that led the rebellion uh, with, with Moses. And the reason is because the Korah who led the rebellion with Moses was a Jew. And these guys are Edomites. And there's actually two of them that are listed here. I don't know if you caught that. But at any rate, anything else that jumps out at you, Rick? Amalek. Okay, now let's think about Amalek. Who was Amalek's mother? Timnah, okay. And what's significant about Timnah? Well, either there's another Timnah that's listed as a chief, or there's a guy named Timnah. Okay, there Okay, in the in the last list of chiefs yeah. that we read at the end of the chapter, the name Timna is used, but there it clearly has a masculine uh, 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 sense to it. Now here it's a, it's a woman, obviously, because she gives birth. Okay, but what's how is she unique here? What's special about her? She's related to the people that were there. Okay. Okay, okay, good. I'm glad you caught that. She's a Horite, okay? Uh, Or a Hivite, depending on how you uh, deal with that. That's another issue. But anyway, she's a Horite. So there's been intermingling between Esau's family and the and the descendants of Seir, who, and there's actually another example of that uh, in the passage, but she's a classic example of it. Okay, so there's intermarrying or interconnection between them. What else stands out about her? Who's she married to? She's a concubine. Okay. She's a concubine. So after it goes through the whole list of names associated with the wives of Eliphaz, then it says, uh, or the wives of Esau and Eliphaz, then it it mentions Timnah as a concubine. Now, I said that you had this list of 12 sons by combining the grandsons of two of, uh, of uh, Esau's wives and, uh, and three sons of another wife of Esau. And you combine those together and you get 12. But Amalek's kind of sticking out here on the end. He's mentioned last. He makes the 13th. Okay. So he's really not included in this list of 12. But the significance, I'll come back to Amalek in a moment. The significance of the significance of the 12 sons, who else has 12 sons? Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Who else has 12 sons? You're going to have to go back in your memory here a little bit. Not too far, but a little bit. Ishmael has 12 sons, okay? So Ishmael has 12 sons, and that is, so this idea of 12 sons, and the reason the narrator wants to construct the list and has to kind of manipulate the list a a little bit to get his 12 sons, the reason he wants to have a list of 12 sons is to communicate that, that Esau is being blessed by God. Okay, Ishmael is blessed by God and he has 12 sons. Abraham is blessed by God and he has 12 sons. And the idea here is to communicate that 
that Esau, even though he's made these bad choices in his life, he's also gotten the raw deal at several points, and God has mercy on him. God has had mercy on him, and God has given him a, a blessing. And when we read that blessing that Isaac gave to him, we kind of go, you know, put that blessing in quotation marks because some of it doesn't sound much like a blessing. But there is a blessing on on Esau's life, and Esau gives him these twelve sons. Okay, but you've got this concubine she's not a legitimate wife and so she has a son and that son's kind of sticking out here like a sore thumb out here on the side and his name is Amalek okay well Amalek goes on and later you see it mentions him as one of Esau's chiefs okay uh, or the Edomites chiefs he actually ends up becoming quite powerful and having many descendants and he kind of develops and he gets this nation kind of on his own and eventually he kind of just goes off and he just be, he really kind of separates from the Edomites. That's all part of another story. But he separates from the Edomites. But he has these descendants and they are called the Amalekites. Okay? Does that ring a bell? Okay, okay. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt... You remember back before we started our study in Genesis, those of you who were around then, before we studied our, did our study or started our study in Genesis, we, um, uh, we looked at uh, the encounter at Horeb for about three months, and we studied that whole uh, movement of uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt down to Horeb and the whole encounter there at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments and all that sort of thing. On their way out of Egypt... As they move down the Sinai Peninsula towards Mount Horeb or towards Sinai, they stopped at a place called Riphidim. And they had kind of a bad experience with God there at Riphidim. But not only that, but this nation of Amalites came and attacked them. It doesn't tell us why, but it came after them just right. I mean, we're talking about within just a matter of, of uh, a few weeks after they'd come out of Egypt. Okay? They came down and they attacked them. And you know about that story because of what Moses did when, he, when they did battle with the Amalekites. Do you remember what Moses did? He raised his hands. And whatever he raised his hands. Remember that story from when you are in Sunday school? Okay, that's the Amalekites. Those are the descendants of this guy Amalek. Okay. And so they come out right off the bat and they're trying to keep Israel, out, keep Israel from ever coming out of Egypt. Okay, they're just going to wipe them out as soon as they come out of Egypt. And God says, that's it for you people. I've had it with you. I'm going to erase you from the memory of the earth. Okay? Well, it actually takes several hundred years uh, for that to happen. And over that course of time, the Amalekites have several uh, unpleasant encounters with the children of Israel. And, but they come up another couple times and really significant in, in redemptive history. And one is in the story of Saul. And when Saul was king, God told him to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what did he do? He didn't. Who didn't he destroy? He didn't destroy the king. He did destroy everybody else, but he saved the king alive and he saved a bunch of their animals, okay? Because he thought, I can make some money on this deal, okay? And that cost him his throne. God said, because you didn't honor me, because you didn't obey me, I'm going to take the throne out of your hand and I'm going to give it to David. And uh, so that's what actually cost Saul his throne. Well, now, 
so and and Samuel then did kill Agag the king. So all the Amalekites who were in that area were killed, but there are still presumably Amalekites scattered in other parts of the world. And we encounter one much later in the redemptive story. Do you know where that is? Pardon? Uh, give us a hint, okay? Um, it has to do with Persia. Yes. Haman was probably an Amalekite, okay? It doesn't call him that. It calls him, I think, an Agagite or something like that. But Josephus, who was a, a Jewish writer, historian writing in the first century AD, uh, uh, associates Haman with uh, the Amalekites. And we don't know that for certain, but it seems pretty, uh, pretty probable that Haman was, uh, was an Amalekite. So here we have Haman, and, what is, you know, and, and he gets mad at Mordecai, but instead of just killing Mordecai, what does he want to do? He wants to kill all the Jews. Okay? Now, it's not just because he's so mad at Mordecai. The guy just hates the Jews. Okay? This is the characteristic of the Amalekites. And that's why they needed to be wiped off the face of the earth, because they were determined to wipe out, to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Okay. Well, so now when we read about Amalek here, clear back here at the beginning, now all this story has an origin to it. It has a beginning to it, you see. And so this is what genealogists can do. They can give us a point of reference. They can help us to kind of hang our historical hats on things. And now we know where these Amalek Amalekites come from. They come from actually a descendant, uh, a, a descendant of Esau through Eliphaz's concubine, uh, concubine Timnah, who was incidentally a Horite, as we've established. Okay. Are there any other things that jump out to you in that genealogy specific? Yeah. Uh, basically sex objects. So people look down I don't know how to answer yeah. yeah, I don't know how to answer that question because I think that would depend on whose concubine you were. If you were a concubine of the king, you obviously would have much greater status and protection. Than, than if you were concubine of a local farmer out here on the, you know, uh, out here on the back 40. So, uh, but I don't know totally how to answer your question. Well, I wonder if the mother of the one who was the object, is she instilled hatred to and you know how mothers can still hatred of a husband and children and certain mm -hmm. I mean, you have to wonder why they Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and... and and, and we do wonder that, you know, you have to wonder why they feel that way, aside from the fact that obviously it was prophesied in Genesis 3 that the seed of the serpent would always be an enmity with the seed of the woman. But, you know, what is the immediate cause of that hatred and that bitterness? It's really hard to tell because Scripture doesn't tell us, but it, you do wonder about, you know, what all is going on there. And, and it, very is, it is very clear through history that, that Amalek kind of separated himself even from Esau and from, from the Edomites and kind of just went off and did his own thing. And so I, 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 when I read that, I tend to think there must have been some alienation in there because he was the son of a concubine. Yeah. But uh, all the dynamics of that, I, I couldn't answer your question. No, no, no. They were essentially slaves. Yeah, 
essentially slaves. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else in the, uh, in, the, in the specific content? Before we look at the structure, and the structure is what I want to focus on uh, some of our primary attention on this morning, but is there anything else that jumps out at you in, in, the, in the specific content of those genealogies? Yeah, she's actually mentioned twice because she's a wife of Esau. But then again, she's another one whose name comes up or that name comes up as a list in the last list of chiefs uh, towards the end of the chapter. Uh, and we'll get to that when we talk about structure here in a minute. Did you have something else you wanted to mention about that? Or? OK, uh, let me just point out a couple other uh, n- names that jump out real briefly or uh, let me get uh, my notes here. Okay, we've talked about Tim, uh, Timnon and we've talked about Amalek. There at the end of the list of kings. Okay, so we have that list of kings. And, uh, and down at the very end of that list of kings. Uh, let me see if I can find it for you here. Uh, in... Uh, verse 39, it says, Then Balhanan the son of Akbor died, and Hadar became king in his place. The name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was such and such, such and such, such. So we have this king named Hadar. Now, the thing about this list of kings, and I don't know if you noticed it here, but this is, a dy- this, this is, not, a, is, this is not a dynasty. Okay? What is a dynasty? Father and son. Okay, so when we think of a kingdom and we think of a succession of kings, we typically think in terms of a dynastic uh, rule. Okay, father begets son, who becomes king, who begets son, who becomes king, who begets son. But if you'll notice in this list of kings, that's not how it happened. These kings were not uh, because each one of their fathers is somebody different than the king previous to them. Okay, so this is not a dynastic rule. These kings are somehow selected or chosen. Okay, or perhaps in some cases they, you know, maybe revolted or, you know, led a revolt and took the king and took the kingship. It doesn't really tell us how the kingship is passed from one to another. Most commentators assume that there is some degree of selection or choosing going on here, possibly on the part of the chiefs or selecting the kings. Okay, it's not really clear to us, but it's not a dynastic kingdom. And hence, it doesn't have the strength or the power that you have in a dynastic kingdom like in the Davidic kingdom. Okay, Uh, but it still represents a fairly sophisticated political structure. Okay, now. Uh, so, so anyway, you have this guy, Hadar. He's the last king that's mentioned, and he's the only one of the kings of whom it doesn't say he died. So he is presumably the king who is alive when Moses is recording this. And if that's true, then the significance of Hadar is he is the king of the Edomites to whom Moses writes an appeal asking for permission to travel through his territory in Numbers chapter 20. Okay, so so Moses, uh, as they're approaching the promised land, Moses writes to the king of Edom and doesn't name him in Numbers, but presumably he's this guy, Hadar, and he writes and he says, please let us come through your territory. We'll stay on the king's highway. We've talked about the king's highway many times before. We'll stay on the king's highway. We won't go off. 
We won't plunder your land or anything. Any food we take, we'll buy. Any water we take, we'll pay for. Just let us pass through. And the king of Edom refused and sat out and not sent an army out to stop them so that they wouldn't come through his land. Okay, and uh, so of course Israel had to go around another way to get to the promised land. Okay, this is presumably the guy. Okay, and then also there's a reference there to the Midianites. Uh, there's a reference to one of the kings there who defeated the Midianites in the field of Moab. Okay, well, the Midianites were also descendants of Abraham. Remember, after Sarah died, Abraham married another wife by the name of Keturah, and she had several sons, and one of those sons was Midian. And, and so these guys, the Midianites, were the descendants of uh, Abraham through Keturah. And the Midianites, uh, we also have kind of an ongoing story with them. We're going to encounter them again in chapter 37 because they're involved in that whole negotiation uh, when Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, the Midianites are kind of in on the middle of that. But they show up at several other points in redemptive history. And one of them is, of course, that great famous story about Gideon. When Gideon goes out and puts his fleece out and, you know, he's, what he's asking is, God, shall I go to war against the Midianites? OK, and so the Midianites, uh, uh, here's a, a reference to them. But what we find is, is that a king of the Edomites has defeated a king of the Midianites or defeated the Midianites in this uh, battle that they have up in Moab, which is up north of Edom. Okay? So these are just some of the content things and, and we can connect them with other points in, in the Bible story and, and uh, it, it just helps give us a point of reference. But, the, but what I've said uh, so far, what I've wanted to communicate to you is that there's also a lot to be learned from the simple structure the way the narrator structures this story of the genealogy. And, and you'll notice that it starts out talking about, in, the, in verse 10, it starts talking about the sons of Esau. And then you get down to, uh, what, verse, uh, uh, is it 19 or so? Uh, and, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 15 uh, and it switches over and it starts talking about the chiefs. So I pointed out that you have a list of sons and then you have a list of chiefs and they are virtually identical. So what's the point? Why do we list these twice? Well, we have to go back and remember what we talked about many, many, many moons ago about the patriarchal culture. Okay? Remember we said the whole society is structured around this idea of the patriarchal clan. So when you were born into, the patri into a patriarchal culture, you lived... With your, uh, you lived with your family uh, under the authority of the patriarch, who was the oldest male in that that kind of extended family structure. And it would typically a a, a household would exist would consist of about three generations, and the oldest male in the in 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 the household was the patriarch. Okay. So you would have the patriarch and he would have his sons and then they would have their son and all of them lived together in one bet ob or one household. Okay. And they would live that way until they got too big. And then when they got too big, one or more of the sons would split off and they'd go start their household. Okay. And so now you had two bet abs and you had two patriarchs. Okay. But they were still closely related to one another and they became a tribe. And so you would get several of these individual households collected around and and that would become a tribe. And over this tribe, you would have a chief. 
Okay. So when you begin to encounter chiefs, what does that tell you about this family entity? There's a bunch of them. They're getting bigger. Okay. So the point that's being made here by the narrator in the way he constructs his story is he points out these are not only the sons of Esau, but they have gone on to have each each one of the sons has gone on to have many, many descendants. And so they are now all chiefs. And so we begin to develop a much more sophisticated social cultural structure. Okay? So what we have here is we have kind of the beginnings of a nation as they're beginning to develop these various tribes, all of them associated with Esau. And they're all they're all Edomites, but they're in these various tribes and they have these various uh, various chieftains. Okay. well, then it breaks and it goes over and it talks about the sons of Seir and it tells us about these sons of Seir and it gives us it does the same thing. It lists the sons of Seir and it says, oh, by the way, these guys were also Chiefs. And so we uh, so we find out that these Horites or these sons of Seir who lived in Seir before Esau lived there also had this fairly sophisticated, developed society. Okay, which involves not only a fairly sophisticated political structure, but presumably also a sophisticated military structure. Now, as it turns out, the Horites are cave dwellers. And okay, now when I say that, what you immediately think of is prehistoric cavemen, right? Okay, well, don't think that. Think Petra. Remember Petra? Okay, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, he comes riding in there to Petra and there's that big, uh, you know. Well, it turns out that palace that you see uh, Indiana Jones come riding up to there at Petra, that's only one little part of Petra. Okay, but it's a cave. It's built into the rock, okay? And but you have throughout the, that it was a whole city there that was built like that, okay? And you can still go there and go in these various caves, okay? But they're very sophisticated palaces and they're they're strong fortresses. This is what Mount Seir was like when Esau went in and routed the Horites and drove them out. So now we're beginning to learn something about the Edomites. The Edom, because we have this, we, the, the, the narrator tells us about the Edomites and that they're now developing this fairly sophisticated political and military structure and they're getting a lot of them. And then he, and then he says, oh, by the way, the Horites, who we know they displaced, the Horites, they had this sophisticated structure too and they lived in caves. They lived in these fortresses. And Esau came in and drove them out. What does that tell us about the Edomites? Hmm? They're strong. They're powerful. They're sophisticated and they're powerful. And there's a bunch of them. Well, after he gets done telling us about the descendants of Seir, he comes back to Edom and then he starts telling us about the kings of Edom. And they did not rule contemporaneously, but as you see, they ruled in succession to one another. So there's a period, obviously, a considerable period of time in which these kings ruled. So first you've had the sons, and then you've had the clans and the, the tribes and the chiefs of these tribes. And now they've gone to develop a kingdom and they actually have a king. And all of this is before there's ever a king in Israel. 
In fact, the last king mentioned is king when the children of Israel come out of Egypt. So all of these kings predate the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. What is the significance of all of that? Why does any of this matter to us? Well, it does matter. What we now understand from what we've learned in this genealogy is that the Edomites are this very sophisticated, very worldly, politically wise, politically astute, politically organized military power who are going to be the neighbors of the children of Israel. Also happen to be their brothers, so to speak. And Israel is enjoined to treat them as brothers, but it turns out that Edom doesn't treat Israel as their brothers, as we see when they blocked uh, Moses from coming through on the king's highway. Well, so, so, so you're one of the children of Israel. And you have just come out of Egypt. And you've already done battle with the Amalekites and you've gone to Horeb and you've had, you know, and, and at Horeb, most Bible scholars say it was at Horeb that Israel was really born as a nation. In other words, it was at Horeb that Israel was first organized nationally. Okay. But before that, they were just a ragtag mob of slaves. Okay. And they go to Horeb and now they're a nation. And then they come out of Horeb and Moses begins to record the Pentateuch and he records this genealogy of Esau and he, and, he, and he hands it to the children of Israel to read. And what do you think if you're one of the children of Israel? Well, what I thought, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but I remembering where they wanted to have kings like all the rest of the folks. And I don't remember where that comes in the story. Uh, well, it comes, uh, it comes uh, after the book of Judges. So it's quite a way towards the end of that. Well, they do do that eventually, yes. Yeah. So that's much later. Yeah, but that is later, but, uh, you know, there may have been some of that going on early. But what would be your first reaction? Pride in their ancestors, you say? Okay. Or run. I think I, I, think I would think run. <laughs> I would think, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're just neophytes at this thing. And these people have been doing this for hundreds of years. And these people have been around beating up on their neighbors for years. And here we are, we're just getting started and they're going to be our neighbors. It'd be kind of scary to me. Well, as it turns out, as the children of Israel are moving towards the promised land, they have to deal with the Midianites and the Moabites. And the king of the Moabites hires a guy to curse Israel. What's his name? Balaam. He hires Balaam to curse Israelites. And Balaam goes out there, but he has some problems with God. And God forces him to bless Israel instead. And one of the things that, one of the things that Balaam prophesies is that there's going to be a star rise in Jacob. And that star that arises in Jacob is going to subdue Israel's enemies. And one of the enemies that Balaam specifically addressed is Edom. And so here Israel is. He comes out of, she comes out of Egypt. She's a brand new nation. She doesn't know the first thing about fighting or anything like that. And she's encountering this massive political, economic military uh, uh, behemoth of, of Edom. And, and God says to him, 
there's going to be a star rise out of you which is going to subject Edom. Well, you go on in the, in the story, you get to the book of Obadiah, and the entire book of Obadiah, which is only one chapter, is a prophecy against Edom for the bad things that it's done to Israel over the years. But then you get to the book of Amos. In fact, let's turn over there real quick and, uh, and we'll finish up with this because this is where it kind of gets exciting. Uh, it's uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, etc. So it's one of those minor prophets back there. In Amos chapter 12, and uh, uh, and in verse 11 it says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Uh, chapter 9, excuse me. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. And so Amos makes this prophecy. This is much later in the story, and this is after uh, all kinds of bad things have happened to Israel. And, and the, Lord, the Lord through Amos speaks up, and he says, listen, I'm going to raise you up again. And one of the things that's going to happen is, is the, messianic, the messianic kingdom is going to be established in you, and Edom will be part of that messianic kingdom. And so we begin to understand then that God has a redemptive purpose for Edom. In spite of all the bad that it's done, God has a redemptive purpose for Edom. But here's where it really gets exciting. Turn over to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, you'll remember there's a big dispute in the church about whether or not the Gentiles can be included in the plan of the gospel without becoming Jews. And they have this big debate uh, there in Jerusalem. And finally, the debate is resolved when, when uh, James, the brother of the Lord, stands up and he makes an argument that the Gentiles are to be included in the gospel plan. And he, to do so, he quotes from Amos chapter 9. His argument that the Gentiles are included is based on Amos chapter 9, verse 12. And he says... In verse 16, or starting 15, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has, fall, uh, uh, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Wait a minute. That's not what Amos 9 says. What does Amos 9 say? The remnant of Edom. But James, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that's talking about you and me. And so, you know what we discover? I mean, you and me. I mean, you and me. I don't mean them Jews back there in Jerusalem. I mean, you and me sitting in this room today. That Edom represents all the Gentile nations. And that God's blessing on Edom and God's promise for Edom that they are going to be included, they are going to be subdued by the great Messiah. And they're going to be brought into this great messianic kingdom. That's really talking about you and I, guys. We're Edom. 
We are the people who live by the flesh. We are the people who live to gratify the flesh and didn't live by faith and didn't live by the promises. But there was a star that arose in Jacob and it was extended out. His rule and his reign was extended out through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And you and I have been included and you and I have been brought in. And that's the argument that James is making in Acts chapter 15 is, listen, everybody's included in this promise about Edom. Everybody's included in this promise about Edom. And that's you and I. And so, suddenly this genealogy starts to get encouraging because I begin to realize that what, what, the, what Moses has done is he structured this genealogy just so that we, as Jews out there in the middle of the wilderness, would be absolutely overwhelmed by the great power of this great nation of Edom. And we would just be, oh man, this is, this is more than we can handle. And he just lets them stew on that for a few years till they hear the prophecy of Balaam. And the prophecy of Balaam says, hey, there's going to be a star rise out of you that's going to subjugate Edom. That's going to bring this great power under its dominion. Now that's encouraging news, folks. Because Edom represents the whole world system. Edom represents the great adversaries of the gospel. And the good news is, is that we have a coming star who's going to come and he is going to conquer and he is going to rule. And as Revelation chapter 7 says, he is going to bring into his rule men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so what this whole genealogy does as I study is it is it study it study it is it just reminds me that you and I are part of this great majestic messianic kingdom which ultimately will rule over and subdue the greatest enemies in the world. And we got all kinds of them, don't we? The world seems so powerful to us. It seems so great to us. And the adversary seems so strong. And it's so sophisticated. And it's so well organized. And I look at it and I go, oh, I just, we can't ever overcome this. Unfortunately, we don't have to. Because we have a promise of a star who rises out of Jacob who will subdue our enemies and subdue the world. And not only subdue them, but do with many of them what he's done with us which is extend to them His gracious salvation and include them in His kingdom. Pretty exciting stuff for a genealogy, huh? Okay, well, next week we'll go on with the Taladot of Jacob.